The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. Shabkar was a uh, Tibetan yogi. I believe he lived around the 18th century. And I want to start by reading something just very short from his autobiography. He was wandering in the mountains and he uh, came across a flower and the flower uh, spoke to him. And the flower says, um, I, the flower, will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice on death and impermanence. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom. Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently with the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. When the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now I look well enough, but I won't last long. Not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull these vivid colors. Till turning brown I wither. Thinking of this I am disturbed. Later still winds, violent, merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. When I think about this I am seized with fear. You mountain yogi, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. When faithful patrons turn up, you sit in a dignified manner. When they shower you with lavish food, you smile with satisfaction. Right now you look well enough, but you won't last long. (laughs) Not at all. Unwelcome aging will steal away your health and vigor. Your hair will whiten and your back will grow bent. Just thinking about it, don't you feel chastened? When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life, vanquished and powerless. Just thinking about it, aren't you seized with fear? Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have offered these words of good advice. And then Shabkar says, well, is there there anything, is there nothing to be done given our situation? And uh, the flower says, um, you must now do as I say. Among all activities, of all things, there is not one thing that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows, even now in the full glory of my display. And then he goes on to say, you too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging. I have a 19-month-old son. And that's, you know, super cute age. And he's, you know, really sweet and adorable, like, you know, most kids that age. And um, I'm noticing two things in my mind. 
One is I'm really, really clinging a lot to, and I, not, I don't mean just the normal connection and attachment. I'm making a distinction between clinging and being attached or connected, right? So I want to be clear about that. Uh, maybe I'll just say something briefly about that. You know, we, uh, you know, Buddhist teachings are not talking about not being connect, having any connections or attachments. Even when we just sit here and meditate, I don't know what you're all doing. The different kind of practices. We'll explore that together in a, in a few minutes. But um, just say you're working with the breath, for example. You know, when when the mind settles down, the mindfulness strengthens, concentration strengthens a little bit. We're very Connected right there, even just with that breath. Right? So we're, we're engaged, we're connected. So to be engaged, be connected is, is not the same as, uh, clinging. So of course, all of us as any of you who, who are parents, uh, obviously healthy attachment and connection with our children, that's part of being a human being. What I, but I'm talking about something different. I'm really clinging, trying to hold on. I, I don't want him to get, I mean, part of me does want him to get older because it'll be easier. And he's still not sleeping that well after 19 months. And so that's, it's not that great. But, um, um, <laughs> right. Well, I have a grown daughter, so I know it can get harder at other ages. <laughs> so I know about that. But anyway, my mind is just clean. He's so sweet. He's so cute. He just loves his daddy and wants to, you know, and that's not going to, just wants me to hold them. And, and it's not obviously not always going to be that way. Hopefully we'll, I hope, we'll have a, a, a loving relationship. But it's, of course, going to change. And that's the other thing I'm noticing right along with the clinging, which is quite strong. It's very, very clear in the moment that you know, they change so quickly. You know, practically in just a week at this age, it's slowed down a little bit, the rate of change from when he was even younger. But it's still pretty fast. A week or two, he's just changed so much. So you, you, you're quite aware that you can't hold on to him. It's that image that's often used to like trying to hold water in your hands. And it inevitably, it's, you see it's just dripping through your fingers and you're trying and trying and that you can't hold on. So I'm seeing both of these very, very clearly. So it's been, you know, it's kind of a cliche to say that, you know, children are our teachers. But I mean, just quite Seriously, it's been really a teaching just to watch this happening in, in my mind. So I've been reflecting on this lately. Um, and, you know, we, the, we don't need to have something as um, striking or as, as clear as, as this example I just gave to, you know, life's always constantly giving us these messages. Right. I mean, about uh, non-clinging or how clinging uh, sets up either suffering or the potential for suffering. Just walk outside the door. You'll see dead leaves, if nothing else, all over the place. Right. Trees that used to be filled with flowers and leaves. Now they're bare. Leaves are on the ground. Just like the flower was. That was the, the teaching. Right. Everything's teaching us that way. But we just don't often see it. We don't notice. We tend to fall into. um I guess it's kind of a trance of life. We're just caught up in things. Now, I think for many of us, I'm making a generalization here, um, when life gets particularly difficult, then sometimes we're more aware, oh, yes, life changes, there's difficulties that come, and, 
and we and we see. But when we're when life's just going along okay, and everything seems fine, oftentimes we fall into it's maybe it's a complacency. We fall into I call it the trance. We're just caught up in things and just going along with our lives, and we don't notice. That's that's just again it's a generalization, but I think that's tends to be true. We, we, we fall into just being on, um, I wouldn't say unconscious, but certainly in a state of being just on automatic pilot as we go through life. And we're not noticing these teachings. And yet we're still caught up in these same patterns that um, can lead us into difficulties or suffering if we're not uh, careful in watching. It's important to use these times All the time, as, as best we can. We've all, everyone here has come together this morning. You're here meditating, practicing. So I assume we all see the value in trying to come to some amount of clarity and freedom of mind and opening the heart and love and compassion and strengthening all these Dharma qualities. Um, and so really the question is, what, what are the things that will be supportive? What are the things that can help us? Just this weekend, I was talking with someone who, um, whose uncle is dying, and he's been given about a week to live. I don't know the details. And she was telling me that he is extremely angry. So he's dying in anger. I don't know if he'll come to some resolution in the coming days. And she just told me a little bit, so I'm... I'm filling in some details here. This may not be exactly right, but it sounded like, you know, he's a good person and just lived his life, but he wasn't particularly engaged in these contemplations about impermanence and that, you know, we're all going to die. And, you know, when, 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 when that time comes, you know, we think something's gone wrong, right? <laughs> but it, but right, but it's not anything going wrong. It's just part of how it is, right? We actually all know ahead of time (laughs) what's going to happen to every single one of us. But, and I'm not saying we come to a place where it's easy and maybe it's always challenging, you know. Sometimes we might have an image or, or an idea in our mind that, well, you know, if we really are deep in our practice, or we've come to some kind of deep realization, maybe when the difficulties do come in life, you know, maybe we're, we're so equanimous that we would never even have any difficult feelings or experiences come up in the mind. Um, I don't know anyone, anyone like that. Matter of fact, if you even look back at the st- uh, story uh, the traditional account um, in the Pali texts of the last few months and the death, uh, the last few months in the life of the Buddha and, the, and just after the Buddha's death. Once the Buddha died, some of these monastics who had been direct disciples of the Buddha, full-time practitioners, I mean, these are serious folks, with the Buddha, <laughs> wailing and crying and the Buddha's died and what are we going to do? And then finally one of the one of the um, senior disciples, I think it was Anuruddha, but I'm not 
I may not be remembering that correctly, said, I'm paraphrasing, you know, what are you, what are you guys doing? Didn't the master tell us that, that all things are impermanent? This is just what happens in life. It's like this is of no use. It's like the Buddha died and you've thrown his teachings right out the window first thing. But I love this story because to me it gives a lot of permission for us to be human beings. I've actually talked to several people uh, over, actually probably in the last few years, two or three, who had been going through tremendous loss in one way or another. Very, very challenging. Who had, I think these two or three people had each said to me that in addition to the suffering of the loss, they were adding this whole other level of suffering because they were, they were beating themselves up because they thought they weren't good Dharma practitioners. Because I remember one of them, one person said to me very clearly, you know, I'm supposed to, there's that word suppose, you know you're in trouble already. <laughs> I'm supposed to like be so free of clinging and not be clinging and just not have the suffering. But it's not like that. And given the situation and the, and the big loss, one of them, for example, had been in a relationship for 12 years and had no idea that anything was wrong in the relationship at all. So that's, I, don't, I can't comment on, well, why would you be in a relationship for 12 years and not, no, I, I don't know about that. But um, one day came home and there was a note. The guy's gone, just left her completely, and she was just in love with the guy, thought they were going to be together for the rest of their life. You know, if she had come to me and said, but you know, I'm a meditator and I just, <laughs> things come and go and, and you saw my mind's at peace, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> I'd be suspicious that she was just repressing herself, right? Because it's... I mean, maybe people can be that way. And sometimes we all know we can have even quite difficult things happen. And it is possible that, that the mind can be at peace and we can have a non-clinging around it. And so I'm not saying that we can't uh, deepen a lot in our ability to be free and at peace in the midst of all kinds of difficulties. Of course we can. But when we, when we add in this, I'm supposed to, rather than what's actually happening in the moment. What's actually happening in the moment is uh, there's maybe some despair or some depression or sadness or thoughts are going through the mind or whatever's happening and bring some non-clinging around that. That's what's actually real and true in the moment. You know? So when I look back to my son, I, obviously if something were to happen to him, that's um, unimaginable. You know, I, I'm, it would be It'd be tough. You'd deal with it the best you could. You'd bring these tools you have the best you can to deal with it. And so this man who's dying in anger, you know, I don't know what, when each of our time comes, what it's going to look like. I would like to think that through these various practices, you know, contemplating death, what's the point of contemplating impermanence and death? It's not to make us depressed or morose. It's to inform how we live our lives. That's what all these practices are for. I would like to think that through some of these practices, at least we have a better chance 
to bring some kind of balance to when the difficulties come and, of course, when even when death comes. You know, so that we've strengthened these tools and we don't wait till the last minute and then, you know, work with it the best we can then. And all of us are here engaged in that, right? We've all come here this morning. So all of us, I'm assuming, some people may not, some may have just your friend just may have brought you to some group you didn't know what it was about. But, you know, so, but for most of us, you know, we see some value. In so then the question comes, well, what are the things we can do? What are the practices we can do that can be supportive? And um, if any of you, I know many of you have been Dharma practitioners for many, many years, and some of you are probably fairly new, so there's a range. But if you've been around for any period of time, one of the things you'll start to notice is there's a lot of different kind of practices that people give. So you'll have here, you have a lot of different teachers. You know, Gil's the main teacher. But um, if any of you are here for the first time, uh, the guiding teacher of the center is Gil Fronstahl. And then there's also people such as myself, lots of different guest teachers, many, many different ones come here also. You probably have heard a huge range of different kinds of practices that uh, people will give. Um, it can be a little, sometimes people even will say, well, this is, forget about what, you know, you heard so-and-so teach like that. No, 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 don't do that. Do this. Or then the other teacher comes and says, well, yeah, but no, no, don't listen to that person. Listen to what I'm person. So it can get that way, but hopefully not too much. But there are people who, who are uh, very, I'd say, enthusiastic about their approach and their style. <laughs> and um, what I, I want to offer is the good news is there's actually not one way. And there's not even one best. Not true. There is what fits each one of us and our style best. And that's going to vary tremendously. In fact, I'd like to even just do a little experiment here. I'm going to actually ask people and to raise your hand. Of course, you may or may not be comfortable to do it, so it's up to you. But let me just ask the question. How many people here in your meditation practice, say, puts a certain amount of emphasis on breath meditation? How many of you that would be? Okay, good, great. For how many people would, you may or may not use breath, maybe in the beginning, but then at some point, there's no, you're not giving any preference to the breath or anything, and it's more a question of just bringing the mindfulness moment to moment to just whatever's coming up predominant in your experience without, without particularly giving breath preference. How many people practice like that? Okay, fair number. How many people here... Uh, work with sound as your primary meditation. Okay, there's a fair, some hands went up, maybe t- 10 or 15. How many people here would do uh, a body scan as a, as a practice? Okay, so a lot of people. And for those of you who don't know, body scan is, and it could, number of ways you can do it, but in some form or another, it's shifting your awareness, starting, you could do it anyway, but maybe at the top of the head, for example, and slowly working your awareness and really through the whole body and down the arms and just scanning with your awareness through the whole body. And there's 
again, different ways it's done. Okay, so fair number of people. How many people here do some kind of mantra practice? Okay, so maybe a dozen or 15 hands there. Anybody here do any visualization practices? Maybe a dozen or so hands went up there. Um, I could keep going. (laughs) Anybody here do any gazing at candle flames? I saw a few hands. Anyway, we could say, oh, anybody here work in a style like there's a Burmese teacher who's been getting some attention lately named Sayadaw uh, uh, Utejaniya. He tends to focus more, not so much on awareness of the breath and the body, but just bringing more awareness to, to the states of the mind itself. Are there any people here where that's your primary practice? So a few hands there. Yeah. So you get the idea. Look around. We're not all doing the same thing. And the interesting, important thing is that we can actually look into... Uh, our own experience. You don't have to look to an outside authority to say, well, you know, is this a good practice? Is it working? Or is there some fruit for the practice? And I actually wanted to read uh, something that Jack Hornfield said that I thought was uh, uh, very good. So just a moment. Uh, Jack said... Um, he was talking about his book, Living Buddhist Masters, which was published in the 70s. It's just a dozen great uh, Theravada, mostly, I think, Thai and Burmese masters. And um, it's been republished in recent years under the title Living Dharma. So a really good book goes through each of the um, talks about their teachings. And actually, if nothing else, I would strongly recommend that you read the introduction to that book because it's just a really is a great intro about what Dharma is about. Jack's got you know such a good way with words, and then he said he was um, he said I deliberately contrasted the teaching so that one great master who emphasized meditation on the body as the way to attain enlightenment was next to another enlightened master who said the only way to get liberated is to meditate on the mind. I did this so people would understand that there are a number of different skillful means to cultivate the factors of enlightenment and come to liberation. Any practice that cultivates mindfulness and wise effort and investigation and joy and concentration and calm and equanimity and compassion will bring one to liberation. And there are many, many ways to do that. My theory on what happens is is that people have been, you know, you get exposed to a particular practice and maybe you go deeply in that and, and really see the benefit and things really break open or deepen for you. And then you, what can tend to happen is people can say, oh, well, that's the way, and then that's what you're teaching. And you may say, well, don't necessarily do these other ways. There are people like me who are more ecumenical, right? But, uh, and then somebody else is practiced in another way that may be completely different, but had great benefit and fruit come, and they say, oh, no, this is the way to practice. This is the way. The only problem is when we say it's, it's the best way or it's the better way and we start comparing it to other ways, which, by the way, when people are doing that, I guarantee you they have not practiced deeply in all these other approaches that they're commenting on as about being maybe not as good. Right? If you hear anybody say practice this way, it's the best way. Not that it's a good way or a great way, but it's the best way. I'm going to offer a way in a minute also for you, but I, don't, <laughs> but, uh, but I want to be very clear. 
It's not better than another way. It's the way I've practiced for 40 years. And I just want to offer it up to you and you can experiment around and see, is it a fit for you? But it's not better. And in fact, it's the way, as I say, I've practiced for 40 years. So um, I actually can't come. I actually don't know. if I shouldn't say it's not better than other ways. I don't know. Maybe it is or isn't. But I have no idea because I haven't practiced deeply in all these other ways. But one of the things that happens, it turns out, is there's a lot of doorways in. We're all practicing in different ways here. There's not one doorway. And once you've kind of gotten into a certain place, it opens up into everything else. It's often, the way it's often talked about is like a hologram. And it's a great image. And I don't understand the physics of how a hologram works, but it is true. If you have a hologram, you know, it's kind of a 3D image as you turn it. Then if you cut the hologram in half, each half contains the whole image. I don't know how, how it works, but it does. And you could keep cutting it. Now, the, the analogy for those of you who understand holograms, yes, the analogy breaks down because the, 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 the picture quality degrades as you keep cutting it. So, but, but that's not my point here, is that the, each piece contains the whole. And these teachings you hear also of, um, um, you know, how many lists have you all heard? Seven factors of enlightenment, four noble truths, right? And we work with the five aggregates and the six sense spaces and the, the five hindrances and, you know, and, and on and on and on. Right? Five spiritual faculties, many import, very important lists. There's some commonality among all of those lists, you know, concentrations on there and mindfulness is on a lot of them, energy or efforts on a lot of them. There's a lot of commonality, but they're different emphasis. And in fact, um, there is a, um, if any of you are interested, of one of the most important of the Pali discourses, Pali suttas, um, on mindfulness of breathing. For any of you interested, you don't have to remember these Pali names, it's Anapanasati Sutta, very important. The opening section of that, the Buddha is in this great assembly of, of practitioners and he comments, he looks around, he says, there's some people who are doing this kind of practice and some people who are doing that kind of practice and doing this other kind of practice and people are doing Brahma Viharas, you know, loving kindness and compassion practices. I didn't ask the group that, but I could have. A lot of hands probably would have gone up. And he praised all those practices. So the important thing is for us to see what is it that's going to support us so we can, for what? To be more awake and clear to seeing how things are. When we walk outside, maybe we really notice, oh, the leaves, yeah, they were all on the tree, now they're on the ground. What is that teaching me? Oh, don't cling. What is a mind, what is a, the nature of a free mind? That's the exploration we're all engaged in. So I'd like to just offer a potential practice for you uh, because my whole practice has been breath meditation. My entire practice has been breath meditation. So, for example, I'll teach retreats up at places like Spirit Rock where I've taught most of my retreats. And, uh, but wherever I teach them, and they, they teach in a particular style that may not necessarily emphasize breath meditation. Right? You might go to retreat there. Maybe they'll have you focus on the breath for couple of days to get settled in. Many of you have done retreats, so you know. And then after that, you know, you open the awareness up to incorporate the body, emotions, 
um, thoughts, just anything that sounds, anything that could be in your experience. And then depending on the teacher, they may have you give a certain amount of emphasis on breath while you're opening up to everything else or um, uh, maybe no emphasis on the breath. Um, I've practiced in a way that's given a tremendous emphasis on the breath. And what I found has happened there is that um, it's very supportive for uh, strengthening what we use this word concentration sometimes. You know, some of you are going to stick around. I'm going to be talking about you know, this book later. I don't know how many of you are sticking around, but on samadhi that I wrote. That topic of samadhi is very, very important. What we want to be careful about is not setting up some idea like, oh, gee, now I've got to get concentrated. Well, I'm not very concentrated in my practice and feel like we've set up some split or dichotomy between what's actually happening and what, where we think we're supposed to be. All of the qualities we're strengthening, working on, as Jack said, he gave a whole list. Compassion, loving kindness, mindfulness, uh, clarity of mind, uh, undistractedness, stability of mind, uh, non-reactivity, any, whatever words we like to use. They're all um, qualities that are very supportive in living in a way that's as clear and free and loving as possible. But we never want to, we want to be careful of thinking, I've got to get something, I'm not good enough, and start judging our practice. Because it's not true, Right? There are plenty of teachers out there who won't emphasize concentration at all in your meditation and practice. Who just say, just don't even think about that. Many, many of them. Sharon Salzberg is a perfect example. I did an interview with her. She consciously de-emphasizes concentration. Right? One of the most senior, well-known teacher, uh, Dharma, Vipassana teachers, insight meditation teachers in the country. She says, you just bring mindfulness as much as you can, whatever that looks like. To, as best you can into what's happening in your life. That's all you think about. There are other teachers on the other spectrum who might say, no, no, no. Not only do you need concentration, but you have to get the specialized kind of, kind of concentration. Some of you may have heard words like jhana. Well, what's jhana? You know, it's a specialized kind of states. You've got to get that or just forget it. You're just, it's not, you're just, not, even, you're just not even practicing I'm kind of a middle path approach. What I want to encourage people is, is to not think you've got to get anything and start from a place of just connecting with whatever's real and true in your experience. That just brings the mindfulness like you've probably always been taught, no matter who, come, who the teacher is. Just what's actually happening in my moment-to-moment experience and bring the mindfulness right there. And the best we can, not have any sense of striving or i got to get or anything. So... Same way you've probably always been taught. And then out of that place, which, is, which will be a place that's very relaxed and at peace right in the moment, really, we do the best we can. I'm not saying we're going to do it perfectly. Then from there, we just practice in ways that naturally head us. There is a path, right? There's an eightfold path. So that naturally head us towards deepening. I don't like the word concentration, actually, um, because it's, but I like the word, uh, the word samadhi, that's the one that's translated as concentration. It actually means... Uh, undistractedness, to be undistracted. There's a tremendous range of, how, of what pe- teachers teach about uh, concentration and how much you need and everything, and all these disagreements about it. But no teachers are in disagreement about 
undistractedness. You know, no teacher says, be distracted. So if we think of it, if we forget the word concentration, which is which is the we'll continue to use the word. But actually, the Pali word samadhi, that's not actually that accurate of a of a, of a translation. It mean we have we could spend time looking into what the real meaning. But if you think of it as a mind that's just undis, undistracted, we could all say, well, let's be as undistracted as possible, not making a project out of it. Not setting up a stress about it because as soon as you're stressed because you think you're not undistracted, you're just adding undistract. You're adding distraction. You're stirring up your mind. So if we can relax, I'm repeating, but it's so important. Relax, settle back into our experience the best we can, and then by giving the way I've practiced quite a bit of preference to the breath. Again, I'm just offering it up to try. Put it in the toolkit with all the other. Uh, skillful means that you've you've learned. If we give a fair amount of preference to the breath, that helps, if you want to use the word concentration, or settle the mind. Never clinging to the breath. There are always, I say I've been doing this practice for actually 39 years. My concentration is pretty good. I definitely have times when I feel, you know, the breath's not happening. There's other things going on. You've got to let go of the breath. So you don't cling to the breath, you know. But for the most part, you give it pretty strong preference. And then, yes, it can. You're, you can get more and more and more narrowly focused on the breath. But, um, and that's where people tend to say that, you know, uh, concentration and insight are these two different kinds of approaches to practice because you don't want to get too narrowly focus on the breath and lose awareness of your other experiences. But there's a whole other way you can work with the breath and it can it can unfold naturally this way or you can be guided to help it happen that way is by focusing in with the breath and then instead of staying narrow it actually on its own opens up fr- but from a very undistracted place into the awareness of the body. So you're naturally from a deep place more intimately connected with the body awareness. And into Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings that come with any experience. Into the states of the mind and the heart. But it's come from a, from a deeply concentrated place. So it's a different kind of practice. It doesn't separate out concentration and insight as sort of two different kinds of things. It sort of brings them all together into one kind of practice. So I'm not talking about how to do that because we just don't have time. But that's something you can think about. But... So you can work with different teachers about it, uh, uh, whoever you work with. But uh, the important thing is, is that as you, if you're experimenting with breath meditation, if, if starting off, if you just keep one thing in mind, that as you stay with the breath, notice two things. One, noticing if you're ever struggling, and then bring your awareness to whatever's happening in your experience to see the best we can to let go of our suffering and struggle, best you can. And then as you're staying with the breath, checking in from time to time to see, you know, if, if it's starting to become more exclusive of other experiences or if it's starting to open up inclusive of other experiences like the body, the mind. Just to notice, not to try and do anything, but just to notice how it's naturally unfolding. That's the first step. And then... There were people here who said, I asked people if they were practicing in an Utejaniya style, which um, I know a little bit. I haven't practiced in that style, but, you know, it was putting a lot of attention, even from the beginning, on noticing what's happening in the mind. 
when I didn't have much concentration, if I tried to do that, I just I couldn't get a handle on it. For some people, it's great practice. But for me, I just couldn't, you know, the mind and I just couldn't get a handle on it. But once the mind settled more, you naturally can see it so much. It's just known. Everything becomes more effortless and clear. So it's another way of using breath to actually then include all the states of the mind and the body. Breath meditation. You can experiment with it. Not clinging, just strong preference to the breath. Uh, we don't have much time. Uh, is there if maybe a question? I don't have much. It'd have to be short. Yeah. You're speaking of the breath. Are you looking at the sensations? Uh, the, the sensation of the breath, or are you including counting? Um, counting could be a technique. I, I wasn't thinking of counting. When I talk about the breath, I'm talking about connecting with the actual physical sensations of the breath. But then it's like, well, what would, so I didn't get into much detail, but it could be that people might, in the beginning, do some counting. At some point, let, let the counting go. But that, people have found that that could help the mind stay with the breath. Some people will use a string of beads, a mala, pass a bead with each breath through the fingers. It can help. There's all kinds of things you can do. You can say the words in and out with each breath mentally. There's all kinds of things you can do. Once, the, once you get the concentration going, that stuff just drops away. So you, it's, it, if it works, use it. I just, uh, I think Spante Kuntaranta came and he had talked about this whole thing of counting up and down and you know, using so, that to, yeah. to help settle the mind. Yeah, so that could be a good technique. Again, the question is, what works? So... I talk too long, you know, it's 10.45 right now, which is the ending time. Let, let me just, t- let's just do this. Yes, so it's 10.45. Um, we're going to end. And, in, and we'll do literally a one-minute kind of loving-kindness ending. And if you can't even stay for the one minute, please don't feel, you know, I mean, you, no, but I mean, you may need to rush out the door. And so I want you to, you know, take care of yourself. Please don't feel self-conscious if you need to go. And I'll say this, some of you know, um, I'm going to be here in 45 minutes at 11:30 for an hour and 15 minutes and um, talk about my book and you know and, and it, you don't have to you know you can stick around a little bit. I'm going to get into this a little more this topic of concentration and samadhi and it doesn't matter if you buy a book or not. But if you feel like hanging out and just hearing it, talking more, you know you're welcome just to hang out for that. Um, also, between now and 11:30, I'll be here for a few minutes. I'll just hang around if you want to talk more about the breath. If you have a question, just come up. We can talk about the practice. Okay. Let's end this way. Um, During this talk, if your mind has gone out into the space here and and maybe lost the connection with your own experience, that can happen, right? Your awareness is into the discussion. I invite you to bring it back and... Use your mindfulness just connecting in with your body. States of the heart and the mind. Um, And notice just what's ever happening in your experience. And I would invite you also to notice how you are being with or how you're relating with your experience. And see if there can be a sense of um, 
of ease and relaxation around or sort of letting be with whatever's there, kind of non-interference, if you will. There may have been things that came up in the talk that you liked. You know, there may have been things that came up that were triggered or you didn't like. And so, you know, maybe something unpleasant is happening. So just whatever's happening, just see if you can kind of relax around it just the best you can. And if there's a place that cannot relax around it, um, so bring some acceptance to that place. And then to reflect that uh, we have, you, we've all used our time wisely together today. You've used your time wisely together. You know, we came here to meditate, uh, reflect on and talk about these Dharma topics. You know, it's, it's, it's a good thing to actually acknowledge and maybe even some appreciation for your own wholesome qualities. And, of course, any time we cultivate these wholesome qualities in ourselves, it's, it obviously benefits us, but it benefits certainly everyone we are in contact with. So it's a benefit for all beings. And that uh, we, it, you cannot practice for yourself alone. It can't be done. So we make that more conscious. We're going to offer up the de- what's called dedication of merit. You can interpret the word merit in many ways. It could be just any goodness, wholesome qualities, good qualities, good energy. We'll say if there's been any merit that's come about from our time together today, we can consciously offer it up. May it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful. And may all beings come to an end of suffering. So thank you all. It's nice to hang out with you this morning.